think two weeks after receiving the, the first purchase order I cut, I ordered a, a couple thousand dollars of product and within about two weeks, all the inventory that I had ordered was just completely gone. You're listening to Deal Closers, brought to you by WebsiteClosers.com, a show about how to build your e-commerce business to be profitable, scalable, and one day, even sellable. I'm Jason Gillikin, and on the show today, we talk to a founder who successfully built his company to the point where he could make a living, then a good living, and then he had a successful exit. You know, sometimes when we think about starting a business, we look into what we're passionate about. Jim Cook left a safe consulting job and started Samuel Adams because he was passionate about beer and had an old family recipe. Jen Hyman and Jennifer Fleiss started Rent the Runway because of their love of fashion. Even Bill Gates was a programmer way back in eighth grade. And sometimes when we're starting a business, it's a pretty simple concept. We find a market that's being underserved and that we can make some money. Today we're with Isaac Porter and Ron Matheson from WebsiteClosures.com, along with the founder of a company that they help sell, GWA Auto Parts. For founder Greg Alper, he found a market that was both underserved and what he was passionate about, high-quality, hard-to-find auto parts. Greg got into e-commerce back in 2008. While he was working at an auto repair shop, he decided to put up a website, and the results were pretty surprising. It was pretty crazy to wake up in the morning and have 5 and then 10 and 15 orders. Back then, those were the days where Shopify really wasn't a thing. We would manually have to process credit cards that would come through and things of that nature. So that was kind of really, really early on. The e-commerce continued to grow, so much so that at the end of 2015, there were 15 people working specifically on that side of the business. But he realized that no matter how much he grew the website, it wasn't really his. I was kind of overseeing everything on the e-commerce side of the business and I wanted a, a pathway to equity in that business, and there there just wasn't a pathway there. Around the end of 2015, beginning of 2016, just didn't really have a, a, a firm grasp on what direction I wanted to go. I obviously had e-commerce knowledge. I had a lot of automotive knowledge. And, and at that point, I, I kind of started to to dig into the ins and outs of starting an FBA business. I had already been exposed to them because we would, uh, when I was working at USP, we would go to um, the Internet Retail Convention, IRCE, every year in Chicago. And over the years, I remember seeing more and more software vendors there geared towards FBA businesses. Um, So I knew it was kind of an emerging market that had a lot of opportunity in it. And for any of the listeners who don't know what FBA stands for or means exactly, could you explain that? Yeah, it's uh, fulfilled by Amazon. So you pretty much uh, launch a store on Amazon, um, you list your products, and then you actually send your products to Amazon, and they're going to pick, pack, and ship them as they sell, as well as handle the customer returns and the kind of basic customer service of, I need to return this, where's my tracking number? This didn't arrive. This arrived damaged. They handle all of that type of stuff. Gotcha. All right. So you're at IRCE and uh, you you see all these businesses popping up and you think like, oh, wait a minute. Now this is something that I could do as well. That That's exactly what popped into my mind because kind of going back to the, the state of launching your own dot com back then, 
I knew all the hurdles involved in there from just setting up credit card processing and hosting and dealing with chargebacks and, and dealing with everything like that. So the, the idea of an FBA business was, was really appealing. Gotcha. Ron, let me bring you into the conversation. Um, what, what's your perspective on FBA businesses and, you know, was that starting to become more of a trend in the, in the mid 2010s? Yeah, actually around tw- uh, 2010 to maybe 2014, um, everybody wanted a website, you know, exact match domain. That's what everybody was looking for. Um, I remember the first Amazon stores that we were representing, people would say, no, I don't want an Amazon store. And, and that's how it began. And then it slowly started to move towards, well, maybe this is a, a good business model. So around 15, we started to do a lot more business in the, uh, you know, the Amazon side than the uh, website side. and. As each year went by, it just grew and grew and grew. And you've got to look at the Amazon itself. I mean, back then, I think they were probably 10 or 15% of retail search is where it started. Now, I think Amazon is, you know, I don't know, Isaac, what is it, 70% or something like that now? It's- that's what they say, 70%, yeah. <clears throat> retail search starts on Amazon. Yeah, that's that's interesting because I, that was one of the numbers that I remember back in like 2015 at IRC at, at the time then. I remember sitting in on a presentation and, and hearing it that it was 55% of purchases online and started with a initial search on Amazon. And so, Ron, what does the model look like then? Are you paying Amazon something like 20% uh, of, of the revenue? Well, there's there's two mafias. There's Google and Amazon. You're going to pay one of them. Okay. <laughs> you know, you're either paying AdWords or you're paying Amazon. And Amazon... You know, they're, they're a little hefty, but they provide an incredible service and it's worth it. I mean, you know, typically it's 30 plus percent of, you know, your sales are going to Amazon. You know, it's, it's a great deal for a seller. I mean, keep in mind, I came from the world of bricks and mortar and you're paying a landlord in a bricks and mortar major regional mall, 10 or 20,000 a month. And then on top of that, you're staffing that from 10 in the morning till nine o'clock at night and maybe at 10 in the morning. You have zero clients till maybe 11 or noon, yet you have employees down there that are just kind of eating up space. And, you know, it's just everything's evolved. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And Amazon is just super convenient and that's where everybody goes. So I, I get it. I mean, the, that 30% is, is well worth it. You know, Greg, when you, when you were starting out and you're, you're starting this, this FBA business, when did you know this was a hit. Like, when did you know you like you had something that that could work here? It was, I mean, two weeks after receiving the the first purchase order I cut, I ordered a, a couple thousand dollars of product, paid a little bit more to get it sent by FedEx to get it quicker, and within about two weeks, all the inventory that I had ordered was just completely gone. Wow. Okay. And what do you attribute that success to? Like, were you just ranking well on Amazon? Just the industry knowledge that I had in the auto space. I I knew what was in demand, especially coming from USP. And I saw that it wasn't available on Amazon or, or if it was available on Amazon, it was items that had one to two week shipping times. Greg, you mentioned that you found Jungle Scout, I think, in 2015 or 2016. Were you using analytical tools to help you pick products that had high demand back then? Or were you just did that help you kind of just realize there was an opportunity on Amazon? 
it, it didn't help me initially because, quite frankly, when I did initial searches on Amazon, the products just weren't there at all on Amazon. Mm. Um, so it was it was more the first products I sold was more of a test of okay, well, I know the automotive industry. I know on a traditional dot com these parts are selling, and they're not on Amazon. Kind of putting two and two together and realizing okay, well, a little at the time, a little more than half of purchases start with a search on Amazon. I kind of wanted to prove uh, a theory that there is demand. There's just no one fulfilling that demand. What a great idea. Awesome. What kind of mistakes did you make in, in the early days? You know, as, as you're going through this, I'm, I'm guessing it's not all going to be like you spend a couple thousand dollars and then it sells in a couple of weeks um, and everything's going great. Uh, I'm guessing there are some road bumps or speed bumps along the way. What are some of the mistakes that, that you made, Greg? Hesitant to order more inventory was definitely mm. a big one and hesitant to just expand the product catalog faster as well as, as hiring people and introducing systems and workflows and, and things of that nature into the business. Yeah. So how do you, how do you decide then, you know, when it's time to expand and hire and, you know, it's it's not just you anymore after that. Like you have to rely on other people and you can't be involved in all the decisions of the business. And that's pretty difficult. So yeah, how do you make those those decisions? Uh well, my view of that today is a lot different than it was in, in twenty sixteen and twenty seventeen. But back then it was something where I was kind of still apprehensive about still kind of completely bootstrapping the business. This was back in the days when Amazon was just really still arbitrarily suspending seller accounts and not releasing inventory and doing things like that. So I, I had kind of reservations about doubling and tripling down on, on inventory and adding people and kind of building out an organization. Yeah. I mean, is it scary to rely on Amazon as an entity when theoretically they could just start selling those same products on their own? I don't worry about that too much because all of our, what our business is focused on is, is very niche within automotive. Pretty much everything in our catalog only fits specific vehicles. Um, and in turn, what makes that unique is we have relatively low unit volume per skew. If I look in the automotive category and see where Amazon's introduced basics and some of their private label brands, it's in more of the uh, commoditized stuff, motor oils, cabin air filters, things like that. I don't really see them getting into automotive replacement parts in, in private label. Gotcha. So you mentioned the the SKUs and that it, you have a, a lot of SKUs, but limited inventory. When did you start to to build up the, that number of, of SKUs? So the, the initial purchase order I placed when I launched the business, I believe, was with five SKUs. I believe the second purchase order I placed, I doubled it and went to 10. Um, and it was just kind of a snowball effect in terms of every time I would order, I would order more and more SKUs because I started using some of the tools to find product opportunities. And at the time, the only one that really existed was, was Jungle Scout. Well, we'll talk about your, your growth. Um, you mentioned growing with, with the SKUs, of course, but you know, how, many, how many team members did you start to build up? And 
I don't know if you want to share specific revenue numbers, but you know, broad scope, like what do revenue numbers start to, to look like as you're growing? Yeah, so I, I think the first sale with the business occurred in, in May of 2016. The the first person I added was in August of 2017. And August of 2017, I think we were we were averaging a little over a hundred thousand dollars a month in revenue. Um, with some some very good net margins, and we ended up finishing 2017. Um, I hired a second person towards the end of 2017, handling more customer service type stuff and, and things of that nature. But we we finished 2017 with uh, I think it was right around like 1.2 million dollars in, in revenue. That's awesome. And so with these numbers and with you growing, you know, when do you start to think about selling the business? Because you know you just started off as as somebody who's bootstrapping it, and maybe it's going through your head like, I don't know that I want to be a um, leading a twenty person company or a fifty person company. And when do you start to think about like maybe it's time to maybe I should be selling this? It, it started crossing my mind in, in twenty nineteen. By twenty nineteen, company broke ten million dollars in revenue. Had I think at the time seven or eight people. And that's that's kind of when the idea of of selling a business first first came into my mind. Wow, that is impressive, Greg, <laughs> to go from uh, just those five SKUs to to then ten million dollars in revenue. Oh my gosh! So, Ron, when did you start to become aware of Greg and, and GWA? Well, you know, we had talked to Greg, and uh, you know, we had decided to go to market after you know some back and forth for quite a while, and. You know, obviously, as we do in a lot of different deals, you know, we had some ups and downs, especially right into the COVID wins, (laughs) dead into the headwinds of COVID. We had, you know, one deal under contract and uh, their finance uh, guys. Actually, I was told their finance guy was in Europe and he couldn't get back in the United States. And right now he was not interested in doing anything until this whole thing died out. So that's kind of how we started. Wow. Okay. And so you, you mentioned that one challenge of of getting somebody back into the United States. What are some of the other challenges that, that Greg and GWA were facing or, or WebsiteClosers.com was facing in trying to, to sell the business? Well, Greg has a great company first. He picked a great sector and he built it very smartly. And it's funny because I always told Jason, and, and this is, there's been two companies that I've looked at since, and we've represented thousands of them, but that I would be interested in. And Greg's is one. And there was one we closed on about a month ago. That was the other. So, you know, congratulations on picking a great sector and building a great company, Greg. But, you know, anytime that you're in M&A, there's always going to be challenges. Um, As an example, yesterday we had a deal fall out. And that particular deal, I think the reason it fell out is because we took so long to come to terms on the original LOI, and I'm talking about maybe six weeks of going back and forth. We finally went under LOI, um, and now we're at the legal stage, and we're actually supposed to close in two weeks. And there were more negotiations over working capital that will that would basically have added a lot of more a lot more debt to the equation. And I think at some point, you know, the buyers kind of decided that they didn't want to keep going, and so. Um, there's a lot of reasons that, you know, companies go under contract, fall out of uh, contract. I think in the end, 
the company we closed with, and Greg, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but was a great company to close with. You know, it kind of works itself up to the point where at the right time in the right place, the right group comes around. How long did that process take, you know, from when you started looking at somebody to, to buy the company to actually finding the, the right buyers? Greg, how long did we take on that one? Oh, we were, we were over a year. Yeah, it, it was. And usually it's not that long. But once again, the, the COVID thing came right in the middle. And also, the, it's interesting, too, because the, the buyer was one of their main operations was tow trucks. And uh, everything shut down for COVID there, too. So their revenue stock came to a dead halt. And, you know, I mean, that kind of changed a lot. And what ended up happening was, you know, we went a few months where pretty much, I think, every deal died. And then maybe within six months, everything started going back to normal. And then, you know, we started building towards the end of 20. We had a, a big year end, particularly a last quarter that was really big. And then I think a lot of it made up for it in 21. So everything just kind of came because we had a monster year in 21. That's when it all came together. Greg, a year long process. I mean, were you ever like, screw this. I'm just going to keep running the business. I don't, I don't want to do this anymore. Yeah. The, uh, that thought definitely, definitely went through my mind. Um, and it was, uh, the, the initial deal that, that Ron was speaking to about the, the main investor that couldn't get back into the country. I mean, we, we, I think went to market in like December of 19. And I think we had an LOI signed by the end of January, 2020. Um, had met them face to face in person. They came down to South Florida and with COVID it, it kind of fell apart at that point. Um, and then it was just a couple months back on market. And then I think it was by June or July, once stuff started opening up again, um, throughout the country, uh, we went under contract again. What ultimately happened that there was, um, they couldn't raise the amount of debt that they thought they could raise. That deal ultimately fell apart um, as a result of that. And then by the end of December, a couple of days before Christmas in, in uh, 2020, the last and, and final blow I was signed with the buyer I ultimately ended up doing a deal with. Well, that's a Merry Christmas for sure. <laughs> well, the funny thing too is, you know, we talk about time periods and our world operates a lot more quickly in the internet space than it does in bricks and mortar. When I first started brokering, six months would have been a fast close. A year was not unusual. Um, and so, you know, you sign a year agreement, it's not unusual to, re, you know, uh, uh, extend it at the year point. And so we're in a world of the internet where things tend to work a lot quicker. That was a particularly challenging period of time. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I'm glad things have turned around in, in 2021, though, and, and now 2022. Um, Greg, did you ever think about as you're going through this and, you know, everybody's kind of uh, tap dancing around, um, you know, actually buying the company or not, and then there's COVID, did you think about you know, just doing financing on your own? Yeah, I did. So I I had taken some some Amazon loans. That was something they had introduced uh, around that time. So I started taking some of those, and it it really would would only go so far. Um, it it wouldn't give me what I would need. And then just looking at kind of traditional financing routes, 
bank line of credit and things of that nature. Um, at the at the time, no one was really comfortable lending to a business like that, a uh, business with a heavy Amazon concentration, with really a founder and an overseas team. The the market's kind of changed a little bit now. Um, I, I can't necessarily say financing and and pulling debt to to grow a business now is is really cost effective with with some of the rates that these uh these companies put out there but yeah it, it's something that i did explore gotcha all right well let's, let's take you back to a, a couple of days before christmas um when that loi was signed it had to feel amazing isaac has talked before about different hurdles that companies have to go through with uh with going from loi to ultimately getting the money and getting the, the ultimate sale Ron, like, did you have to go through any of those hurdles to getting to the point of, of actually making the deal? Yeah, there's always a lot of back and forth during the contract, during the working networking capital is always a challenge. You know, there's just so much that goes back and forth. We just got off of a call just before I jumped on here. That one's actually kind of funny because we are working really hard to close tomorrow. And why? Because Friday is April Fool's Day. <laughs> and nobody wanted to close on April Fool's Day. And so we actually had an eight o'clock call on Tuesday, last night a 9.30 call. And today they're working through just, you know, probably 40 or 50 pages of documents to get done for tomorrow's close. And so um, it's, it's, you know, there's a lot that goes into all of it, you know, when it comes to getting to the finish line. Every one of them are the same. They all have, you know, a crisis at the end. and. You always have to, you know, do some workarounds and figure it out. And, you know, eventually everybody gets on the same page and, you know, it works out. Yeah. Well, I imagine there's got to be some sort of, oh, crap moments. Greg, what do you remember from from this? Like, were there any moments where you're like, oh, man, I don't know if this is going to get done? Yeah, it, it came. Working capital was a point of contention from, from what I hear, not just from you, Ron, but from everyone. It, it always is. Because the, the two sides want to look at it differently. So working capital was at one contention. And then negotiating non-competes was another. And and ultimately, the only way that, that this deal kind of got done was, especially when it came to non-competes, was to keep the lawyers out of it and have a conversation with the, with the main partner at the private equity firm and uh, ask for very reasonable language where if, if this buyer is the, the the right person that you're going to continue working with, they're not going to oppose it. Um, so uh, the way I typically am is I typically won't ask for something that I wouldn't agree to myself. Yeah. There was a lot of eight o'clock at night, nine o'clock at night calls. Fortunately, we, we got all that out of the way rather quickly. It was a kind of lengthy process. I think from the LOI signing to closing was about four months, but there was, they did a lot of diligence on the business, on the catalog, on the supply chain, on a lot of different areas of the business. Gotcha. And so then what happened? Did you get a, uh, did you get cash and do you have equity still? Like what are some of the parameters that you can talk about? Yeah, so the, the deal had uh, a cash component up front that came out higher because uh, we were above the working capital target. So 
Um, that was nice to have. I was able to pay off the Amazon loan. I was able to pay off a, a couple other things. Uh, and then there was a, a seller note, which had some interesting provisions that, that I negotiated in there. And then it also had an earnout, which had some interesting provisions as well. And then uh, roll, rolled equity component. Um, so it kind of, kind of had multiple, multiple avenues. Obviously, I would have, like any seller, I probably would have preferred more cash up front, but understood the mechanics of you're not going to move a dollar on an earn out to a dollar in cash. It's typically not going to happen when you're dealing with, with uh, uh, finance guys. Gotcha. What does that even, even mean? Like the, the interesting components of a, a rollout? Like, uh, I, I, we don't need to get into specifics, but like, w- what kind of interesting components could there be? Yeah, so uh, traditional earnout, as I understand it, and as I usually see, is okay. The, we we close the deal in twenty twenty one. In twenty twenty two, if the business hits this benchmark, um, you're going to get paid X amount of money. In twenty twenty three, if it hits this, you're going to get this payout. Twenty twenty four, you're going to get this. So what I kind of negotiated in there was acceleration provisions. So. Let's just say the three benchmarks were 5 million, 10 million, 15 million with five at year one, 10 at year two, and 15 at year three. I wanted to put myself in a position where if we just completely hit it out of the park and do 10 million in year one, I want both earnout payments in year one. Hmm. And likewise, if I hit, let's in this example, 15 million, I want all three earnout payments that year. In year two, if I hit, in this example, the 15 benchmark, I want both of those payouts there. So those were some of the, the interesting components that I wanted in the, in the earn out and, and ultimately got. Awesome. How has it gone since closing, Greg? Has it, uh, has it gone as you've planned or suspected or forecast? A, a lot of it has and a lot of it hasn't. Um, just like anything else in a rapidly growing business. Um, in a market being Amazon that rapidly changes, it's, it's, it's definitely been a fun journey. We've added a lot more people to the organization, um, not just overseas, but a lot of high level people domestically. There's a, uh, a board now that I, I have to interact with on a weekly basis and, and things of that nature. So it's, it's been a, it's been a fun ride for the first year. Nice. So, Greg, you uh, ultimately made the sale of the business, and you've got more earnouts. What does it look like for you now? Are you still the the CEO of, of the company, or, or are you just on the board? Uh, both. So, I, I do have a board seat. I sit as the the president of the company. There's technically no CEO of the company. Um, we just kind of defined a, a corporate structure, being led by a president, which. We're just continuing to, to grow the business and, and looking at kind of making, making some very strategic acquisitions in the, in the space. And that's not necessarily focused solely on an Amazon business. That's awesome. In the space, meaning auto parts, or are you going beyond that? Auto parts and closely related. So automotive, motorcycle, marine, power sports, tools, small engine. Um, those those types of uh, very technical product categories. I know a company that can help out in finding companies to buy. I can't remember their name. 
Uh, like website uh, websitecloasers.com, I think. If if you need help, I'm sure they can help. <laughs> yeah, we'd, be, we'd be happy to help you with that, Greg. Yeah. <laughs> um, so when you when you sold the company, um, you got your your first cash payout, and um, what's the? How did you celebrate? What's the first purchase that that you made? I bought a vacation rental slash second home in uh, Colorado. And that was about three months after closing. That is awesome. So how often do you, do you get there? Uh, I closed on the place in August of last year. I spent a total of two weeks there. Oh, come on. <laughs> you're, still, you're still very busy, I guess. Well, Greg, thank you so much for being our guest here on the uh, um, Deal Closers podcast. And this has been a, an amazing episode, and I, I truly appreciate it. It was a pleasure to, to be on the podcast. Thank you. Great to talk with you, Greg. That's, yeah, very much so. All right, that was Greg Alper, and you can find GWA Auto Parts at GWAAutoparts.com. Thanks, everyone, for listening to this episode of the Deal Closers podcast brought to you by WebsiteClosers.com. If you like the show, be sure to rate us, write a review, press the follow button, or share with your network. And of course, if you're looking for help selling your e-commerce business, be sure to visit WebsiteClosers.com. This episode was edited and produced by EarFluence. I'm Jason Gillikin, and we'll see you next time on the Deal Closers podcast. Podcast.